You can support this podcast on patreon.com forward slash firstpawmedia. Here's to the adventure-seeking dog mushers out there. The hundreds of you who stand on the runners dreaming and thinking about the northern lights. Of course, there is something else you can do if you've got something to say. Start a podcast with First Palm Media and harness your creative side. Maybe even earn enough money. Enough money to tell yourself, hey, I'm not just a dog musher. I'm a rover. I'm a wanderer. I'm a voyager. I'm an explorer. Visit firstpaw.media. Mush on over today. Hello and welcome, everybody. This is Robert, and you're listening to Mushing, and I am joined today by a dog musher calling in from northeastern Ontario, a heck of a long way from Toronto, about nine hours driving. His name is Jacob Betker. Jake, how's it going today? Not too bad. How are you today? I am fine, thank you. Thanks for being a fan of our show. I know you reached out to me the other day after listening to one of our other episodes where we talked about kennel management and things up here in Alaska, and we're going to get a very unique perspective on what's going on in Canada and in Ontario specifically. But before we do that, Jake, tell us who you are and what you're all about, please. Sure. Um, so we have um, what we consider a fairly small uh, sled dog kennel. We have 28 dogs. Uh, we really grew uh, quite a bit over the last few years. We had two litters last year. Uh, we were a recreational kennel up until fairly recently and uh, started doing tours last year, and this will be our second year doing tours. Other than that, uh, I'm also the president of the Ontario Federation of Sled Dog Sports and have been doing dog sports in some capacity or another, starting with bike yoring for about, I don't know, oh God, 15, 17 years now. Wow. So you've been involved with the sport for a long time. You said you started in bike joring. How did you get started? How did you find out about the sport uh, back in the day? Uh, so it was, uh, I ended up with, um, uh, uh, young dogs about seven months old, uh, just from the pound kind of who had way too much energy. And at the time I was really into, um, just, uh, cross country mountain biking in general. And I found out that I could, uh, hook them up to the bike and got absolutely fascinated by it. And it kind of, uh, tumbled from there. And of course, one thing leads to another, and here you are with a, a gaggle of dogs, as I call it, and you're, you're pretty remote, and I'm interested in finding out a little bit more about that before we really dive into the topic. Uh, before we jumped on air here, you were trying to figure out how you can describe it to people uh, that are listening all over for folks that are not familiar with Northern Ontario what can you tell me about where you live and uh, where you keep dogs and that sort of thing? Uh, so the area that we live in, actually, for uh, you in Alaska, will sound fairly uh, familiar. Um, it uh, developed out of mining booms. Um, so after the Yukon gold rush, there was a big uh, silver um, uh, rush in a place called Cobalt, which is in northern Ontario. And uh, that started kind of the hard rock mining boom. And uh, there were several gold rushes that followed. And uh, there's a community that we live outside of about 20, 30 minutes called Timmins, Ontario. 
And uh, attendance has um, been, there's been gold mining, five, six active mines for going on 105 years now. Uh, so very active mining communities all around us. And then uh, we have a community called Cochrane just north of us. And that's uh, where you can take the train to go up to the James Bay Coast. Well, I'm sitting here as we're airing tonight or recording tonight, watching the Winnipeg Jets and the Detroit Red Wings. Are you a hockey fan up that way? I'll be honest. I'm not big much of a hockey guy, to be honest with you. Hey, that's okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm a big hockey fan. So anytime I have somebody on from Canada, I always ask if they're hockey fans and, of course, to uh, tell me who their favorite team is. But that's okay. Uh, you are definitely a dog musher. So you have 28 dogs up there. And you said you've done a little bit of everything and involved with some touring business. What's that like? Uh, so we actually just started, and um, so one of the reasons uh, we started was kind of some of the legal changes that were happening in Ontario, and um, we were, uh, Ontario was kind of at a funny place to just as far as the community, we had a very large kennel concentration in one particular area around, kind of around Algonquin Park sort of within uh, three to four hours of Toronto. So there was a lot of kind of larger um, touring kennels that were uh, drawing from tourists from Toronto, um, including the largest kennel in Canada for a long time, Choctaw, which they had about 400 dogs. So there was quite a few large uh, touring outfits in Ontario, and most of them have actually shut down over the last few years. Um, so there was really kind of a shortage of operators in general. And then with some of the legal changes that were happening in Ontario, we kind of made the decision that we were in a position where I'm a carpenter by trade. So I had the skills to kind of do some of the work to keep up with the legal changes. And, uh, we had the genetic potential, uh, sitting in the yard to expand the yard to do it. And so we thought why not and this will be our second year we had a lot of fun last year uh we were a bit more limited still a bit limited this year because we have a lot of young dogs so we have about uh we have 15 yearlings this year uh training for the first time so it's been a very interesting fall to say the least and I'm really interested in talking about those legal challenges here in just a second. But two more questions, sort of background, Jake. Uh, first off, where where do your clients come from? Are they in the immediate area or are they traveling pretty good distances to come visit you guys? Um, so we when we started last year because we were limited capacity as far as adult dogs. Um, so before we decided to kind of take this plunge, I had a recreational kennel of about uh, between 10 and 14 dogs usually. And uh, so we were somewhat limited. So we were running shorter tours and we had a lot of clients who were kind of from the local area, but we actually had several people who flew up from uh, Toronto and made came from quite far places to specifically come and uh, do a tour with us. And part of that is because in Ontario, we are at about, uh, I think just off the top of my head, I would say, uh, six or seven tour operators for the largest province in Canada. So there it's really, I mean, if somebody wants to go do a tour, it is actually quite hard to do it in Ontario. 
And tell me quickly about your dogs. Uh, you have a very young kennel that you said. Are you running Alaskan Huskies, Siberians, Malamutes, a mixture of all of them, or what? Uh, so we have Alaskan Huskies, and they're uh, distance line Alaskan Huskies, mostly Jeff King lines with a bit of stuff mixed in. Um, we are uh, tilting in the future towards doing more multi-day tours. So um, I personally, I mean, it's the dogs that I've always wanted and I've always dreamed of. Uh, but definitely we were looking for very uh, good coated, very tough uh, dogs that could uh, go distances and could do, um, you know, multi-day tours and that kind of thing once they grew up a bit more. Very good. So let's jump into the topic at hand. And I've heard about this for for many years now about your guys' regulations and and just how difficult it is to keep sled dogs, not only in Ontario, but throughout the country of Canada. It's very strict. And you said in your your info back and forth uh, when we were talking uh, on Messenger, you said that you guys have some of the strictest sled dog regulations in the world. I don't know exactly how to approach this so we can keep it on time, but maybe let's talk a little bit about what the regulations are and why they're that way. And then we'll end that topic on what you guys are doing to make a difference. So let's talk about sort of the history of the regulations or, or what it's all about right now. Sure. So I'll give you a bit of background. What happened was um, animal welfare legislation used to be enforced by the SPCA in Ontario up until 2019, where they were actually taken to court. And the issue was that because it's uh, not the government enforcing government legislation, it was deemed that they didn't have proper oversight mechanism. So they actually surrendered the the enforcement of animal welfare and the province had to step in in 2019 and take it over. So they came out with new provincial animal welfare laws themselves. Um, And then in July 1st, 2022, they came out with uh, specific standards for outdoor dogs. Now, as far as specific standards, uh, I actually had to look it up. There's only three categories which have specific standards in the new legislation. That's outdoor dogs, uh, confined wildlife, and captive primates. So just to give you an idea of the category that we kind of got thrown into. Um, as far as the definition of an outdoor dog, an outdoor dog is any dog outside for more than 60 minutes without direct supervision. So sled dogs, obviously our dogs fall under that purview. Some of um, the regulations, uh, a lot of the regulations had to do, of course, with a topic that's fairly controversial uh, with tethering. Uh, In Ontario, we've had for a long time a law saying that the dogs have to have um, a movement of 10 feet, essentially. So that was always interpreted by mushers that with a a five-foot tether, when it spins 360, that gives them 10 feet of movement. So that was now specified as no, the actual tether length has to be 10 feet long. Um, There was... um, Uh, various other things. So housing, for instance, we now have to have R5 insulation in the roof. 
Um, there was uh, specifics as far as how much straw has to be in the floor to be an equivalent to R5. And I think the one that um, I think has been the biggest hang up for everybody is that we were actually legislated that we have to keep um, unfrozen water available to the dogs 365 days a year. So, I mean, with uh, your musher, you're fairly familiar with your typical tether yard setup. Uh, me personally, I've been working in construction for about 20 years or so. I could not for the life of me figure out a way to make that work. Um, we get temperatures of down to minus 40. So even we weren't even sure if, for instance, heated water bowls would work in our uh, circumstances. And um, I, we actually, we had no idea how we would set it up. Um, so we actually ended up when the legislation came out for the past few years for our own kennel, we've actually been renovating and we now have uh, 17 large size pens. So we actually transitioned all our dogs to pens and we now have little insulated wooden boxes that a two gallon heated water pail sits in and then the power cord runs out of the back of it. And then we have power cord all the way along for our pens. So we actually have 17 heated water bowls going right now. If I could jump in here, Jake, I believe I saw that that setup that you did, I think you posted it on Facebook uh, earlier uh, this this winter, mm -hmm. I think. And it's a pretty cool setup, and you got a lot of feedback back and forth about it being very difficult to keep that clean water there. So I can only imagine, especially at those temperatures. So a couple of questions right off the bat. Uh, you had mentioned that you guys are under the regulation of the province of Ontario. Is that right? That's correct, yeah. Now... I assume that each province has their own standards. Here in the United States, by most part, it's typically the county or the borough that regulates uh, sled dogs and or other pet regulations. But it's it's province-wide up there, and I would imagine that it varies quite a bit from Saskatchewan to British Columbia to Ontario, et cetera, right? Uh, yeah, it varies quite a bit. There's actual... Um so just off the top of my head, I believe it is Saskatchewan and Manitoba actually use the must with pride guidelines specifically for dealing with sled dogs. Oh, okay. Okay. So there is, yeah, so there is quite a bit of variance. We're definitely um, an outlier now. Um, I mean, in a sense, it's, uh, I always compare it to Denmark, where tethering is actually done banned completely. Uh, in a sense, I mean, they did the same thing just without actually making it illegal. Because, I, I mean, maybe somebody is smarter than we are and they can figure out how to set it up in your typical sled dog yard, but we had to change everything essentially because of that. Yeah, 10 feet, 10 feet chains are, are quite quite a bit. I can imagine how much space you would need for... 20 or 30 dogs uh, just just to have that that spot and of course those regulations for the houses as well before we get into the why it is like that any other things in regard to regulations how do they how do they permit it do they come out and do an inspection what is that process to make sure you're in compliance 
So we actually found out what that process was. Um, so what happened is because I am vocal on social media and was vocal throughout uh, when this uh, legislation was being discussed, uh, we actually had complaints made against us. There is now a 1-800 number for the province that anybody can call to um, uh, make a complaint for animal cruelty, that kind of thing, animal welfare issues. Uh, so we had complaints made against us by um, people that have never been to our kennel and have never seen our dogs. Uh, there were several complaints. I think they were calling about once a month or something. Once they had about five complaints, then we got a letter in our mailbox from the provincial inspectors. Um, they actually then came out and... Um, so they came out and they actually go through and they measure each dog. So they take each dog and they measure them from the tip of the nose to where the tail starts. That is has to match the length of your dog house or the longest dimension in your dog house. And then they take a dog when it's standing fully erect with the head held high, measure from the ground to the top of the head, and that has to match um, the height of your dog house. So when they came, um, originally, it was still uh, fairly early. I think it was in December. We had a very mild December, so we just had regular buckets. There. We had the heated buckets sitting in the basement, but they hadn't been installed yet. Um, because I was just changing the water, so it, and it wasn't an issue. So we actually were issued an order for the water because it had the quote-unquote potential to freeze. And then we were also issued an order for the sizes of the dog houses because they said they were too small lengthwise as well as heightwise. Now, uh, we disputed both orders, which you have to do within 10 days of being issued an order, which then means that it proceeds to the Animal Care Review Board for the province, which is like a judicial body similar to a court. Um, because we contested the measurements for the dog house, and I actually contested their actual measurement taking, they had to come back and re-measure the dog houses and also to check on the water. So they ended up coming back. They pushed the date back, and they came the date before our first um, uh, day at the tribunal. Uh, they came the day before, and they actually had to rescind the water order because we then had the heated water buckets in. So they were happy with that. They pulled that order, and they remeasured the dog houses. Then the next day, we went to the Animal Care Review Board, and um, the, the lawyer for the province, we were self-representing. The lawyer for the province found out literally at the Animal Care Review Board that the one order had been pulled. So then he asked to actually have discussions with us to come to some sort of agreement, which uh, fell apart, um, partially because a, um, they tried to actually get us to sign an undisclosure agreement, so a gag order, which I refused. And then um, after they had pulled that out of their agreement that they wanted me to sign, I said, okay, that's fine, but I still need the new measurements that they had taken in order to know what I'm building to if you want me to adjust the size. At which point I was told that the dog houses just have to be big enough for the dogs. So that's when our negotiations with the province fell down. 
uh, we actually ended up going to the Animal Care Review Board on, based on the order of the size of the dog houses. And uh, the, we actually had the order amended by the judge um, because essentially the short version of explaining this is the longest dog that they measured at our kennel was 40 inches long. The inside of our dog houses, so they're double dog house, but essentially the inside of our dog houses is 36 inches long by 24 inches wide, right? So they said, well, your dog is 40 inches long. The length of your house is 36 inches. But because the diagonal is your Pythagorean theorem is 42.72 or something like that, the judge actually agreed with us that the length of the dog house is sufficient and we just had to modify the height. So then they gave us until July 31st to do that and um, they have not come back to check. We got an email at one point asking for dates to come check and then sent them several dates and then didn't get an email back for a month and then got an email saying, oh, sorry, we didn't get back to you. We'll get back to you at some point. So theoretically, they still have to come check the height of the dog house. So the, the folks that come and check uh, here in the U.S., at least all of the places that I've lived, uh, the animal control officers are pretty much like police officers. You know, they, they come out, they have those types of powers, if you will. Is it similar there or something different? It's similar. So they are actually under the jurisdiction of the Solicitor General and technically under qualify under the Ontario Provincial Police. Okay. So they kind of fall under that umbrella. And when they do come out and inspect, do they give you a kennel license, a permit, something to operate or what? No, no. So it's a purely complaints-based system. Uh, we still do have our municipal, um, so we're, our municipality actually has um, a clause in the bylaws for the dog. Um, there's a limit for dogs, four, I believe. But one of the clauses in the bylaw actually says that um, you're exempt if you are a sled dog kennel registered with the municipality on a rurally zoned property. Okay. So we actually registered as a kennel with the municipality, yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, Jake, it sounds very similar to what we have here in uh, the Matsuber of Alaska. Very similar uh, requirements. Now, of course, we don't have to have those 10-foot tethers, but we do have a lot of other regulations that are in place, you know, for size of dog houses and straw and all of that just humane care of dogs in general. So let's switch gears a little bit. I know that that uh, dog mushing in Canada has gotten uh, a lot of press over the last few years on some really high-profile incidences, mainly in the resort areas of the country. I know one in in British Columbia, and as you mentioned, down in uh, southern Ontario near the big cities. Is that the reason why a lot of these regulations are now in place, or is it something different? Um. It's hard to say. Um, I think uh, when the switch from SPCA to province happened, um, I think a lot of the people that moved over uh, kind of on a bureaucratic level are people that moved over from SPCA originally. And I think there is very much a kind of um, Southern Ontario 
perspective on it, if I can say that. Um, I don't think there was ever kind of a fondness of people who were in the animal welfare part of the equation of the mushing community, whether rightly or wrongly. Um, so I think it's something that goes back. It's also something that goes back historical, uh, historically. So I do a lot of research on Ontario history and, um, the Toronto SPCA actually issued a call on the Ontario government to ban all sled dog racing about a hundred years ago. Before, before the invention of snowmobiles, there was already people in Toronto wanting to ban sled dog racing. So I don't think it's a new story in this sense. Yeah, and that's, that's very typical around the world. You have really two sides of the coin. Either people really support our support our sport or they are against it. It's, it's kind of difficult to find a very happy medium. And as a dog musher, mm-hmm. you know all of the, all the back and forth that's gone on for decades about this. And it, it's really interesting to kind of hear different sides of it. And I think that's why you reached out to me uh, to begin with. So... What is the perception by by the public, by the community? What what is the per- perception of sled dogs today in in the end of 2023? Here is it something sort of romanticized that you know a lot of people hold sort of that Balto Togo Iron Will type uh, romanticizing of the sport, or is it something different? You think? I think there's a complete disconnect. Um, so I always. Um we talk about this fairly often in our household, actually. Um, And I always say this to people on the trail. I mean, we've been talking as a community quite a bit about the snowmobile thing and it's nobody ever expects us and nobody ever thinks about us. Right. So I find in Ontario specifically, it's something where, I mean, we have a long history going back to uh, 1600s, 1700s, 1800s. Uh, with the fur trade, that kind of thing. The lake we're on had a trading post in 1813. Um, so, I mean, we have the history in the area and we're steeped in it. But there is, um, I think most people in the province, to most people, it's something that is done off in Alaska or the Yukon. They don't realize that it was everywhere in Ontario up until 100 years ago, right? So one of the differences that I've noticed with Ontario history compared to, say, Alaska and the Yukon is that the switch to mechanization happened much faster. So it happened within one to two years. So I know of the commercial fishing operation that had, for instance, 25 flood dogs working for them, and they switched to um, uh, machines, two machines, and within two uh, two years, those dogs were gone. So I think it was something where that transition was a lot quicker. And because of that, I think to most people, it's something very mythical that happens in far off places. I think most people are uh, surprised almost to see us, uh, even people in their own backyard kind of thing. And I think it's usually it's when others come, for instance, they have family visit from overseas or that kind of thing. And then the family will come and they'll say, well, it's, you know, the north, we want to go dog sledding. And that's when we usually get a call from people locally. And I have to jump in here, Jake. Uh, We're almost out of time for our radio listeners. So if you're listening on the radio over on KVRF, uh, we encourage you guys to hear the rest of the story over on our podcast. You can find that podcast over at mushing.com or wherever you follow your podcast. Make sure you hit that subscribe button. 
All right, Jake. So we have talked about sort of the what and the why. So now let's talk a little bit about what you guys are doing as a community. And I know you, you've you said that you've, you've done a lot to be compliant. Uh, you, you've done your watering system and changed to pins and all sorts of things. But as you mentioned at the top of the episode, a lot of people in this sport are really struggling. Like you said, there are very few tour operations now. Uh, I believe you said in Ontario. I'm not sure if you said in, in the country in general. But uh, you guys are having a, a tough hoe to haul with all of these regulations. So what are you guys doing as a community, whether it's in Ontario or just as a, as a country in general? Uh, so for Ontario specifically, I think it's, uh, I got to say hats off to um, the few operators we still do have in Ontario. I know everybody did a lot of renovating. Um, I know several yards that moved, uh, switched uh, containment systems completely, and tried all, have tried all new different kinds of houses and setups and that kind of thing. Um, us personally, so one thing we're starting, for instance, is that we're going to be offering um, people staying at our property hot tent winter camping. And uh, one of the ideas for us behind it was that you know we put a lot of effort and work into the kennel and we want it to be nice and we also want people uh to break down that disconnect so we want people to come visit see hang out with the dogs just watch them you know what i mean so that people can actually have that connection to the dogs and maybe understand the sport a bit better getting that message out is very difficult of course the the uh the negative reviews are obviously the loudest. Those are the people that that make the most waves when you know when that sort of talk goes on. Aside from having people come up and stay with you and leave positive reviews, whether it be on you know social media or something like that, how can you stay ahead of the game if, like you said, if people are, are commenting not on just your kennel but other kennels throughout the country? How in the world are you are you communicating that message when you're literally fighting up against a brick wall? So uh, I mean, part of it is uh, mushers tend to be uh, we live in the middle of nowhere usually and tend to be not the most sociable creatures. So something for us as a club was um, uh, when I took over too is I've been trying to just advocate for the sport a lot more. So even to you know send the emails to uh, the provincial politicians and try to get a hold of people and try to you know really uh, um, point out the significance of the community uh, to I mean the historical factor and then also the potential for tourism right so to show uh, to really tell people and show that you know we have this potential to bring people in for some for an experience that's completely different than kind of the crowd or um, segment that we get for snowmobiling in the winter, right? And it's something where I'm personally also trying to emphasize a lot the kind of history that we have in Ontario. So we have several history projects that we're working on to really show that, you know, the details and the stories and that kind of thing, which is a lot of the um, things that are missing in the Ontario history is that people know that people had sled dogs but there's no stories of, you know, that famous lead dog or that big journey or those details are all missing. I find a lot. Interesting. Uh, if I could take a quick step back here, Jake, you had mentioned that in general, the, the lay public, just the average uh, man and woman 
have sort of a, a disconnect with dog mushing, they, they, you know, it's out of sight, out of mind, so to speak. But what about two other uh, segments of the population? Number one, the tourism folks, the, you know, the tourist boards or whoever is there in Canada. And secondly, what about the local and uh, providential government uh, actors, you know, people that are involved, not necessarily the animal control board, but you know, I, I don't know what you guys hear, like, for example, here in the U.S., like a mayor or a city council or something like that. Where are those two sides uh, uh, understanding the sport? Um, so I think from, uh, I mean, politicians, um, I've spoken to mayors and uh, our provincial politicians and councillors and all kinds of things. I think usually it's um, uh, they're surprised, to be honest with you. Not many people even know kind of the details of what's going on or how the law actually had effects on kind of us as a community, right? So even my um, local politician who is part of the government that implemented this legislation and he voted on him, I spoke to him actually at an event fairly recently, which was um, actually an event held um, by uh, Science North and it was on Indigenous ingenuity and kind of, um, so it had segments on dog sledding, uh, hunting, uh, canoe building, that kind of thing. And so I actually spoke to him and I, there was a complete disconnect. So he, they, I don't think the understanding was there that the legislation that they uh, necessarily passed would have these consequences. And I think part of that is because there is so few mushers and typically in the past, you know, we're not the loudest, we're not, you know, we're kind of in our own corner doing our own thing. So I think uh, for a lot of people, there's kind of a disbelief when we start telling them the details. I mean, for us uh, in Canada, a fairly big problem is we have a lot of First Nation communities, for instance, that don't even have potable water available. And now we have legislation saying that by law, they have to provide their, you know, their dog has to have clean drinking water 365 days a year. But I mean, as a country, we're not even able to provide that for the actual citizens. So it's, I think there's a bit of a disconnect between, you know, the reality of, I think I, the goal was to kind of admirable in the sense of taking care of the dogs and that kind of thing. But I think it was definitely hijacked along the process. That's interesting that you say that about the water. I didn't even think about that. So what about the tourism boards? How do they see that? If you approach uh, your local tourist community, what do they say when, when you mention what you do? Um, so we actually, I did a presentation for um, kind of the board for or, uh, the northern part of the province not too long ago. And um, I think in general, um, I would say surprise too. I think they see the value, especially now, um, because there is a very much a shortage of winter tourism in Ontario. So our big season is summer and then there's not much in the winter. Uh, we do have some snowmobiling, but I think that's a very specific segment. Uh, we don't have much uh, operators where you can, for instance, rent snowmobiles. So mostly it's people coming up from southern Ontario to go north. They already have their own machine, that kind of thing. Um, so there is a very much a need for kind of a unique uh, winter products to bring people in. So they were very interested, but I think it's they. I think we're surprised by the state of the community and also didn't know about the laws coming in and kind of the new hurdles that were in the way. 
So it'll be interesting to see kind of how we proceed forward now. I mean, I've been at a point where we said, okay, now we jumped through all the hurdles and we did all the things. And, you know, maybe we can now try to turn around and try to make this a positive and say, hey, look, you know, the dogs live this way and try to promote it that way or something. And we'll see what happens. But we haven't heard anything back too, um, I mean, too committed in any direction, to be honest with you. Jake, a lot to unpack here. We could probably talk for several hours on this topic and uh, we might have you back on if we get a lot of comments back and forth. Obviously, we have people listening all over the world and it's always interesting to get a -hmm. different perspective for sure. So, Jake, I always end our interview uh, podcast with the same two questions and I'm very interested to hear what you have to say uh, especially with with all that we talked about. So the first question is, uh, where do you see, or actually, let me ask the other one first. What do you see is the biggest change in the sport since you've been involved? You, you've, you've said you've been doing this for, I think, 15 years or so. Obviously, these regulations are a huge change, but what is the biggest change otherwise, whether it's the dogs, the gear, uh, you know, the mushers themselves, what do you see as the biggest change in our sport since you got started? Uh, I think the level of care, to be honest with you. I mean, um, I, I don't know many, I mean, most kennels now have free running programs. There's people with, um, refrigerated treadmills up in Alaska. And I, I mean, the level of, um, care that is taken of the athletes and even um a lot of the kind of um more stuff like free running and social stuff is being taken into context so i think there's been a lot of development in that kind of field and i really i mean huge big up to ontario mushers for really um stepping up to the hurdle placed in front of us but i think as a community in general i think mushers have really been pushing the envelope as far as I mean, managing a large group of dogs in a way that is really best for the animal, right? And I think when we compare ourselves in an honest way to a lot of the pet population, I think in the last five years, it's been amazing with the kind of development that I'm seeing and the type of things that I'm seeing, the way people are running dogs, just trying different things and yeah, and really giving the animals more room to be animals, I find. Great answer there, for sure. It's it's always a different perspective from just about everybody we talk about. So the next question is, where do you see the sport in the next decade or so? It could be on a Diderod perspective or uh, the recreational side or whatever. Where do you see the sport of dog mushing in the next decade or so? Is it climate? Is it uh, participation? Is it the dogs? What do you see happening in the next little while? I don't know. It's funny, Robert. Um, we were uh, not too long ago, we were watching videos of uh, kind of the new electric snowmobiles they are coming out now. And uh, so I think the future might be interesting. I think that's something that uh, not many people have thought about is uh, all the small engine stuff and, you know, the switch over to electric and what the implications of that are as far as traveling in the wilderness in the winter. But who knows, maybe uh, maybe our dogs are going to make a big comeback in a really big way if you want to go more than 100 kilometers in the future in, uh, you know, the northern tundra. 
Yeah, it, that's interesting with those electric snow machines. I can I can only imagine. Uh, you know, they have those uh, uh, charging stations for the Teslas and stuff uh, ever so often up here in Alaska, and and I think you guys have similar weather to us. And I don't think that they work well uh, here on even a drive yeah. from from Anchorage to where we're at in Willow. I think you probably. Uh, are going to be hard pressed to uh, to make it there in those temperatures. So I don't know how a snow machine will work out. But hey, uh, progress is king, as they say. So it'll be interesting to see. But, but <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, it, it will be interesting to see if if dog mushing makes a comeback. I think that would be really exciting for us for sure. So Jake, uh, definitely hang on after we say our goodbyes here, so we can wrap up. But before we end, how can folks? follow you or find out more about you. And of course we'll link this in the show notes. Um, so we're pretty much on all social media and our kennel name is Abitibi sled dogs, A B I T I B I. And, uh, we're on YouTube, Facebook, uh, Instagram, the whole nine yards. Uh, we're just in the process of working on our website, but that should be up fairly soon too. Very good. Jake, Jake Betker is our guest today, and we'll be sure to pass along any questions that you guys have over to Jake, and he will do his best to answer them. And we encourage you guys to leave comments wherever you're listening to this podcast, and make sure you hit that follow button or subscribe or wherever you're listening, and uh, you'll never miss an episode. Jake, it's a pleasure. Thanks for reaching out. I know you and I have followed each other for quite a while over on on the interwebs, if you will. So thanks for having you on and uh, good luck in the future with all that you guys are dealing with. Thank you. Happy trails. Thank you. On behalf of my guest tonight, this is Robert for Mushing. We will see you guys next time. Goodbye. Are you a fan of the great outdoors? Do you enjoy the thrill of speed and adventure? Then listen up. Introducing Mushing, your ultimate guide to the exciting world of dog-powered sports and mushing. Whether you're a seasoned musher or just starting out, Mushing has got you covered. Get ready to immerse yourself in captivating stories of incredible sled dog races, expert training tips from seasoned professionals, and gear reviews to help you make the right choices for your team. From the breathtaking landscapes of Alaska to the snowy trails of Scandinavia, Mushing takes you on a thrilling journey through the world of dog-powered sports. Don't miss out on the latest issue packed with exclusive interviews with top mushers, in-depth articles on sled dog nutrition, and stunning photography that will transport you to the heart of the action. So whether you're dreaming of competing in the Iditarod or simply want to learn more about this incredible sport, Mushing is your go-to resource. Subscribe now and get ready to unleash your passion for mushing. Visit our website at mushing.com or find us on your favorite podcast platform. Mushing, where the spirit of adventure meets the power of the pack.